from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Paul Jensen. Paul grew up in Denmark during World War II. He had a very adventurous spirit that took him first to Canada, then to the U.S., and then after becoming a Baha'i to the Bahamas and Panama. I started the interview by asking Paul where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there. Well, I was born in uh, in Denmark in 1933 in a small town. My dad was a farmer. I think at the age of six, that's when the Second World War started, and of course Denmark was occupied by the Germans all during the war. So for a kid growing up, Amongst German soldiers was a very exciting time. We had a lot of fun at, at as, as kids with with the Germans. They occupied our schools, so we shared our schools all through the war. And it was actually the SS stormtroopers that were there. We, we loved them. They showed us a good time. You didn't feel threatened by the Nazis being there? No, the, the kids, I, I don't think kids really are aware of the severity of problems like that. Uh, of course, uh, Denmark, you know, was sort of the food store for Germany. Denmark is a very productive country as far as food is concerned, and uh, the Germans relied very much on, on Denmark, I think, for feeding their armies. So they treated uh, the Danes, I think, fairly good, but of course there was quite a bit of opposition. There was an underground, you know, that blew up railroads and so forth. It really... Uh, did not interfere with us out in the farms. Now, did you have any friends that were Jewish that been negatively affected by the presence of the Nazis? No, but you know, the Jews, I don't think, were negatively affected until the, the day that the order came for all the Jews to put on an armband, you know, with the star. And our king at that time was uh, Christian Tenth, and he was the first one to put on an armband with a star on it. And so I think half of Denmark, maybe, I, although I'm not quite sure about that, but I know a lot of Danes who are not Jews put on the armband with a star on it. So the Germans didn't really know who the Jews were. If my memory serves me correct, I believe there's about 5,000 Jews in Denmark at the time. The Danes managed to smuggle almost all of them to Sweden and got them out of the way of the Germans. I get the impression it was some time after their first, after their initial occupation, that this occurred. I cannot tell you the date really when it did happen, but of course it was. Uh, it must have been in the, I don't know, maybe in the middle part of the, the war because it was not in the beginning though. Mm-hmm. But I, I cannot. I don't remember the year. Of course, I was only a kid. You know. Were you aware that the Danes were doing this to in protection of the Jews? No. Uh, I don't think we were, yeah. really, to tell you the truth. We, we were aware of the fact, though, that the king put on his armband with a star on it. No. 
the fact that they smuggled them out and so forth, that went totally unnoticed by, I think, the majority of the Danes. What was religious life like for you growing up? Oh, uh, it was actually uh, wonderful, I think. I grew up in a, in a Lutheran home. My parents were both very dedicated uh, Lutherans. And I was actually proud of them. I still am proud of them as, as Christians because I think they're as good as Christians as I've never met. I had a wonderful childhood and wonderful parents. Of course, uh, Sunday school every Sunday and uh, prayers before every meal. And uh, we sang a lot of psalms together and did a lot of reading from, from the various holy books that we found sort of boring. <laughs> Do you remember when the war was over, how old you were? I think it was the 5th of May in 1945 that the war ended. I remember that like it was yesterday. Uh, of course, we lived out in, uh, out in the country, out in the farm, but uh, we lived close to a town about eight kilometers away, and uh, we were all in there and celebrating, and everybody was out dancing on the street. Up from the south, we lived, we lived close to, uh, at that time, the main artery that goes, went from north to south in Denmark. The British and American soldiers came in droves, you know, and of course we welcomed them with open arms. In addition to the Nazi occupation and uh, the end of the war, is there anything else that you would say significantly happened to you as a child or growing up? Well, well, you know, I never even finished elementary school. I went to, I was 13, when I was 13, my dad uh, was ill. He had to have a kidney removed. And in those days, I think that was sort of a serious operation. So he spent, I don't know, it seems to me it was maybe six months he was in the hospital. And uh, so I had to stay home and tend the farm. We had a small farm. We had milk cows and so forth, which, of course, had to be milked. And the farm just had to be tended to. And... Uh, my mom went down and talked to the school teacher, and he said, well, Paul is doing okay, so I, I guess he could skip the last year, you know, which I did. Then in Denmark, when you're 14, there's confirmation, and in those days, you had to pay if you wanted to go on to uh, further education, and my parents were not very well off, so uh, when I was 14, I left home and was on my own from then on. And why did you leave home at 14? Well, because that, that is just the way it was done. I mean, I, I was now a man. You know, when you're 14, you can now start to smoke, and uh, <laughs> you have to go out and, and earn your own living. I went out. I hired out on a farm where I worked for a while, and then I started to work as an auto mechanic apprentice. And then how long did you do that? Well, I think I was probably, uh, let's see, worked on a farm, I believe, for, for two years. Then I was a mechanic apprentice for two years or something like this. When I was 18, I was drafted into the Army, where I spent two years in the Army. And did you stay in Denmark when you were drafted into the Army? Yeah, I stayed in Denmark, yeah. But, uh, then after the two years in the Army was up, well, of course, then uh, I had to get out and see the world. Why did leaving the Army trigger you to feel like you had to go out and see the world? <laughs> when I was a kid, as long as I can remember, I have been 
a prolific reader. I read and read and read and read, you know, anything I could lay my hand on. History, science, travelogues, you name it. So maybe all this reading sort of whetted my appetite for coming out and seeing what was going on in the world. Because I'm the only one of my family who has ever left the country or done anything like this. What do you think made you different? I wonder maybe it was the reading. I mean, no, none yeah. of my uh, brothers and sisters did, did, did the amount of reading I did. I was always wanted to go to the, come to the United States, you know. That, that was one of my dreams. I read so many stories here from the United States, you know, and uh, I, I thought this, this is the place I got to go visit, you know. So what did you do after you got out of the Army? Well, when I got out of the Army, I packed a suitcase and I traveled over to Sweden. And why Sweden? Well, because uh, it was close by, you know, you, if you're in Copenhagen, you sail across the, the water in about 40 minutes, I think. And I got a job at, uh, at a ship's yard, shipyard over there as an electric welder. And I was welding oil tankers for a while. When wintertime came, I just felt this is too cold to sit out here, you know, all day in the freezing weather and weld. So I quit my job, and I, I decided I want to be a, a sailor in the merchant marine. So I went and looked to find a job, and I finally got hired onto this old ship that was uh, in dry dock being fixed up. It had been sunk by the Germans uh, up by uh, Norway, and... Uh, was raised up after the war, and they were just finished repairing that when I got hired onto it, and uh, we sailed from Sweden up to Finland, and then from Finland, my first trip across the ocean to uh, North America. What part? Uh, we, we came up to, uh, to Maine. The trip yeah. over was very, very exciting, because, you see, there must have been, an, I think it was in 1953, if I'm not mistaken, they had the worst storm in the North Atlantic that they'd had for some 26 years. I believe that there was 14 ships that went down in the North Sea during this storm. I remember that was the year the dikes, I believe, in Holland was flooded. And we just had a terrible time out there. And, of course, being a, a newcomer, this was all very, very exciting and scary at the same time. Old boats from a leak. So we were just pumping and pumping and trying to keep the water out. But we made it to, to the United States. When we came into a harbor, we needed a lot of fixing up on the ship. So uh, very, very exciting. So how long were you docked there? Well, I think we were probably on three or four days. Then we, uh, we sailed down to, uh, to Boston, I believe it was, and from there on down to Charleston, North Carolina. And... Uh, <laughs> I remember in North Carolina, a couple of buddies and me, we were in town walking around, and uh, we saw, a, I believe it was, I'm not quite sure, but I believe it was a Walgreens drugstore. In those days, they had soda fountains, you know, and of course, we had to go in there and see what it was like, and we saw those big signs of a banana split up on the back wall. That got us all excited. I think we had two or three banana splits <laughs> each before we left. <laughs> 
Then I remember hitchhiking. I just wanted to get in to see the country, so I went out on the road, couldn't speak a word of English, standing there, thumbing my way, and I got picked up. And uh, I forget where I got off, but I remember they were selling oranges down there. And oranges, of course, was something that in Denmark was in short supply, so I bought this sack of oranges, and uh, I wished I never had, because I was carrying back a sack of oranges most of the day, trying to hitchhike my way back. But uh, it was an exciting uh, uh, trip for me. Well, you sound like a very adventurous guy. <laughs> well, yeah, I've had my, my share of adventures. And, and you know, then the, the interesting thing, too, was when we left to go back to Europe, we got out into uh, the Atlantic Ocean, I don't know, three or four days, and we ran into another storm. And it was an old boat. Well, you know, when the waves are that big, you know, many times the, the rudder and the, the propeller gets out of the water, and I guess a big wave just came and hit the rudder and busted the, the machine. You know, those things had, uh, this old ship had a uh, power steering for the rudder. It was steam-operated, and it just broke a huge axle. So we were floating around without being able to steer the boat. We wrecked up some sort of facilities with the steam winches on the deck of the boat. And that worked for a while. And uh, the storm went on and it hit the rudder again in the same and, store and tore the steam winches out of the deck, actually. You know, so we were floating around out in the Atlantic with a, without being able to go anywhere. And uh, they wired or, or telegraphed to England and after a while... I forget how many days, a tugboat came out from Southampton and towed us into to harbor. How, many, how far out were you? Well, I, I, I don't know. Uh, it took us the first day, the first time we sailed across, I guess because of the storm and out, it took us 21 days from Sweden to, to England. I think it probably took us about three weeks or so to get back. I don't know. It seems like maybe we've been out there. We must probably have been about in the middle, because otherwise wow. you'd have probably been towed back to the United States. You're not kidding. It was far out there. So what happened when you got back? Well, we were in dry dock in Southampton for a while, and the ship was repaired. We went to Poland. I forget what it was we picked up, actually. We sailed down to Morocco. And I got unloaded down there and uh, took on a load of what it looked like sand from the desert, but I think it was something similar to sand. And we brought that back, and at that time I'd had enough and, and got off the boat. And uh, I went home to see my parents and to tell them about the adventure I had, you know. Then I worked, I guess, in Denmark for a couple of months, and then I decided I have to go out and try it again. <laughs> so... I went back to Sweden and uh, got on another smaller boat that sailed, actually, that could uh, sail up the, the river in Gothenburg and up to, up in the middle of uh, Sweden, there's a big lake called Venon. And they had a lot of uh, plants up there where they made wood pulps for, for paper production. So we would sail up there, and, and that was just the most incredible trip up this river. We had to go up 12 locks 
in order to get up to, to the lake. And then we would load on with paper pulp and go down, down the locks again, and we would sail over to England, uh, primarily to Hull, the, the town of Hull in England. But we also went to Scotland and Ireland, though, and delivered a paper pulp. And normally we came back with a load of coal. One night, we were ready to go leave uh, Vernon, you know, to sail back to England. Now, Vernon was a lake that was just crystal clear, and the water out in the middle of the lake, we could use that as planking water. So 2 o'clock in the morning, I was down on the deck, filling up the tanks with fresh water. The second mate was on the bridge. Well, apparently he had missed the light where we were supposed to make a turn, because just of a certain, it scared the daylight out of me. This huge ship just hit rocks, and I mean, we were going full bore with a full load of paper pulp, and uh, we we sailed onto the rocks, and I don't know how, we got lifted out of the water quite a bit, and there the ship was sitting with a tremendous tilt, you know. <laughs> that, was, that was quite a shock, I tell you. So there we sit, and uh, of course the next day they came with all kinds of tugboats and cranes and stuff to unload the boat, and uh, finally got it unloaded and sailed back to where they came from and was in dry dock for three months, and got the ship with the bottom welded back on. And, uh, so I did this for a while, and uh, then I decided, well, this is enough. We had sailed through... Uh, you know, I, this is terrible. I can't even remember. There's a, you know, you've heard of the Suez Canal. There's a canal like that going through the southern part of Denmark. But I, can't uh, I think it's called the Kieler Canal. We sailed through that in the month of January, and it was storming, and it was, it was just a terrible, terrible night. Now, there was a sister ship built just like the one we, we were on that was from the same company. It had left two hours before we did that night. That ship was never seen again, although we were both going to the same place. There was many stories about it. Of course, in those days, the water had been mined, you know, by the Germans during the war, so maybe it hit a mine, or maybe it just sunk because there was too much ice on the boat. When when we got finally got into Malmö, and we had to have an icebreaker in front of us because the last, I don't know, the last half day, it was just solid ice. When we finally got in there, have you ever seen a big ocean go in a, a, a boat? Mm-hmm. On the side, you know, it has a circle and it has numbers. It shows where the, the water line, I mean, it's actually the boat or the ships would never sit below this water line, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, we were way below this water line because the, uh, our ship was so full of ice. I mean, a wire, you know, a, a steel cable like a, the size of a, a thumb, you know, was was maybe two, three, four inches thick. There was ice everywhere, so the weight of that just just weighed down the boat. So I decided maybe this is enough sailing. So <laughs> I, I left and went home to see my parents. Well, of course, I had to have a job, so I put an ad in the paper and telling them of my experiences. So there's a small island off the coast of Denmark, called Apple Island. And uh, it was a privately owned uh, island owned by a baron. 
and it was a beautiful island, and it had a big castle on there with three wings, you know, I don't know, three or four floors, the main wing, and they needed somebody to come, and uh, they had a boat that they, you know, they used, of course, for getting provision from uh, the mainland, again, produce from the la- from the island back to, to the mainland, and uh, we had our own uh, power plant, which I took care of, then just a handyman, and uh, Cut a lot of. They had a lot of beautiful timber on this island, which we cut and took it down to the to the sea, and it picked up there. And uh, it was it was a very interesting job. I loved it over there, actually. But uh, well, <laughs> you know, I, I I had a girlfriend that I liked very much, but uh, she decided she didn't like me anymore. So I thought, well, I'm going to see if I can go to America. So I was reading the paper one day, and I saw in the paper there was a there was an ad that said a uh, Canadian company is in Copenhagen hiring people that are interested to become lumberjacks in the woods of Canada. Well, I got in to where the, to the train station and hopped the train and <laughs> went to Copenhagen and met with the people. And they said, do you know how to cut down a tree? And I said, yes. Well, they said, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was very simple. Uh, and actually, it only took three weeks from that interview to the day that I left. Uh, I, had, uh, I got uh, the visa, the immigrant visa for Canada, and all of that was just arranged in three weeks. In those days, I guess they were very eager to have people come to uh, to Canada. So I got on the train from Copenhagen and uh, we uh, went down to uh, Bremerhaven in Germany where I got on board a boat called Castel Felicia and uh, headed for New York. We stopped off in Southampton and it took nine days to cross the ocean in those days. There was about, I think there was close to about 30 of us, 30 uh, boys from, uh, or young men rather, from Sweden, Norway, and Finland, and, and Denmark. Uh, so maybe about seven or eight, something like this, that had hired them to go to Canada to cut lumber. We had a wonderful time sailing across the ocean. It was a beautiful, beautiful weather all the way. We were very lucky because the boat was filled with a lot of young American uh, students who had been in Europe on, on some sort of exchange trip. I met this one girl, Jane, on this boat. I've been married to her for 50 years. <laughs> now, what was Jane doing on the boat? She, she had been on a, a student exchange trip. You know, uh, she went to England and Norway, Denmark, uh, Germany, France, and so forth. She was on her way back to the States. And I didn't speak any English. And I mean, I did not speak any English. I knew a four four-letter words from <laughs> the ship. That is the extent of it. But uh, we uh, we managed uh, somehow to communicate, though. And uh, at nine o'clock every night, the music played up, and the full moon was out, and we danced. It, it was just a a fantastic trip, I'm not kidding you, coming across the ocean those nine days. And we landed in New York. My wife, of 
course, he had to continue on, and I had to continue on to Canada. But no sooner had I, had I set foot on American ground that there was, a, uh, there was an American uh, agent from immigration that came. Because I had visited America once before, they could not secure a, a visa for me to the United States. So he stuck to me like glue. I'm not kidding you. Wherever I went, <laughs> he was with me all the way to the to we crossed the border up to Canada. My wife, now Jane at that time, was broke. I still had $2.50 in my pocket. I lent $2.50 so she could take a taxi up to a hotel so she could wire her pants for somebody. I didn't need any money because all my expenses were taken care of. We, we then ended up in, uh, in a town called Capuscasing up in the northern part of Ontario. And I mean, it was as far as roads went uh, in Ontario. North of there, there was only woods and then Hudson Bay. We were met by the train by people from the from the fourth company, and they took, then took us out to to camps. And we were put in camps. I think there was twelve people per per cabin. Actually, facilities were pretty nice in the. The food in these places were extraordinary. They had a German cook, and he cooked for us something unbelievable. So we started to cut wood. We were cutting down the black spruce that they were being used for paper pulp. I had a partner we normally paired up in two, and we were paid uh, piecework. I think it was $8 and something for per cord. I don't remember what the court is, but it, it seemed like quite a bit of wood. And we uh, paid back our trip, and it didn't take long. I think the whole trip from uh, Denmark to Canada at that time, I think the bill for that was like 250 or $275. That was paid back. We arrived in August. So we had August, September, October, and most of November. But then one day it started to snow. And it snowed, and snowed for three days. And my partner and I, we got out in the morning, and the bulldozers had sort of cleared roads into this wilderness. And uh, we went in there and jumped off the road, and we stood in the snow up to our waist. Well, we cut down one tree, and it fell down, and there was a big snow cloud. And then, where was the tree? We couldn't see the tree. So we decided, hey, we can't make any money doing this. So we tried to uh, drive trucks that were hauling wood out in the wintertime. We couldn't do that either. So I hopped on a plane. That was my first airplane ride from Capuscasing uh, down to Toronto, Canada. I'll never forget that trip. I couldn't speak, still couldn't speak any English. And I, I was hungry when I got on the plane, and I noticed stewardess was going on around and asking people if they wanted something to eat. Well, I could say no and yes. So I said no, and I saw everybody else getting fed, but I was sitting there being starving. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I landed down in Toronto, and I had a friend that uh, I grew up with in Denmark who, uh, who was in Toronto. I got in contact with him and uh, shared a room with him for a while and started to work in a factory, uh, 
we were making panels that uh, for uh, building houses, I believe it was. Really nice people working there. A lot of immigrants. I remember a Russian with nothing but stainless steel, stainless steel teeth in his mouth. They were all trying to teach me English, and it worked pretty well, I think. I uh, worked there for a few months, and then I decided that there's no future in that. I got a job working as an auto mechanic. I worked at that for the rest of the time I was in the, I was in the states or in, in Canada, already. But around Christmas, I had saved up enough money, and I went into Toronto. I looked went in and bought a car, and you know this is this is so fascinating how, how life is really. I remember when I was a kid after the war, home in Denmark, there was a Ford dealer, and he had this uh, Ford car in the showroom, and I'd be standing there in the window looking at this beautiful, in those days we called American cars, we called them for dollar smiles, you know, looking at that, and boy, I wish I could have a car like this, and you know, I went into Toronto that day, and I found a car just like that, and bought it, I think I paid $150 for it. I hopped in the car, and I drove from uh, Toronto down to Restville, Illinois, yeah, I don't know if you know where Springfield, Illinois is, but it is very close to Springfield. Had a wonderful trip. I mean, don't believe uh, believe that I really felt I had arrived. You know, I had my own car, and I was driving from Canada to the United States. This was really quite a trip for me. I was nervous coming to Rushville, meeting Jane's parents for the first time, of course, and wondering what they would think of this Dane, you know, that spoke broken English. But they welcomed me with open arms. Had a wonderful time down there with the family and drove back up to Canada and continued to work as an auto mechanic up there while applying. Uh, I had applied for for visa to come into the United States. But that just dragged on and on. Summer came and I drove back or maybe I know. I, I believe I took the train this time to go down to uh, to Rushville, and we were talking, and I was telling them about uh, you know my visa wasn't really getting anywhere. So my wife's dad said, "Well, you know, we know a, a congressman here. Let's drive over and talk to him." So we went over to see the congressman, and I told him my story. By that time, my English was fairly good. He said, well, he says, I'll tell you what, I'm going back to Washington on Monday. I'll see what I can do. By the way, I gave my first talk. I gave a talk to the, the Rotary Club in Russville, telling them, uh, well, some of my stories, I guess. What inspired you to get on the speaking circuit? Well, I, I'm not, I've never been on the speaking circuit, but, I mean, they just... Uh, James' dad belonged to the to the Rotary Club, and uh, several of his friends. And uh, I met them. And in a, this is Rushville is a small town, a population three thousand, out in the middle of the cornfields, you know. And uh, they didn't see too many people from the other side of the world, so I guess they just thought it'd be interesting to hear his his story and take a, on the United States, you know. So I, I I enjoyed it. I actually got invited to go up to talk at. Uh, where was the colors up in uh, Macomb, I think it was, but that never materialized. But I went back after this trip, and when I got back home, there was a letter from the embassy in Toronto, Canada. 
apologizing that this had taken so long, and here's your green card. And I was off to the United States. I came to Galesburg, Illinois, where I uh, had a job as an auto mechanic for a while. I don't know how long I was there, but uh, I decided to try something else. I become an insured salesman. So I sold insurance for a while. I think then I got married. I married my wife that I'd met out in the middle of the ocean. There didn't seem to be much of a future in uh, Galesburg, so I went up to Chicago. I must have had 10 jobs from one to another, you know. Never, never had a high school education or anything like this. People were reluctant to hire me. So I thought, well, there has to be a way because I know I'm capable. So I sit down and put an ad in the Chicago Tribune uh, under, in the weekend paper. And the ad read, Viking, freshly imported from Denmark. <laughs> if you have the work, I have the know-how. You know, I had 150 phone calls that weekend. Amazing. With offers that you cannot even begin to imagine, you know. It was unbelievable. Well, I took one job working for a man who had started a furniture company in Chicago. He had two warehouses and two stores filled with furniture, and uh, he really didn't have much bookkeeping or anybody to run it, so I took over that job. Well, that lasted for about six months. It turned out that this man, I, I don't know, he was... Not a very good guy. He took everybody for, for money, you know, and was selling all this furniture. He'd gotten credit for 50 cents in the dollar. So I left there, you know, put another ad in the paper, and uh, an old Jewish fellow called me up and wanted me to come to work for him. Yes, I said, okay, I will. This was back in the early 60s, I think, uh, maybe 61, 62. But I said, i got to make $125 a week. He said, impossible. Nobody makes $125 a week in these days. Well, I said, then I can't work for you. Well, after two weeks, he called me up and he says, okay, Paul, he says, I'll tell you what, you come to work for me. He says, I'll pay you $100 a week, and if it's the end of the month, he says, you're as good as you think you are, I'll give you the extra 100 So I came and worked for him for a month, and I got my extra 100 this was just at the beginning of the plastic bag period. Uh, there was not much machinery, and uh, a lot of people really didn't know much about it. So I sort of got in on the ground floor of the plastic bag manufacturing. Uh, after a couple of years, another man bought out the company, uh, which was a little storefront with one little bag machine. Well, he bought it out. He had a couple of bag machines, and uh, I started to work for him. His place kept on going, so we moved a couple of times. And uh, there was a young man that came and did his books, and we got to be friends. And uh, we decided to buy out the place. So him and I bought out the place, fifty-fifty. So it was called Argus Polybag Company. Today it's a multi-million-dollar corporation up in Chicago, and we started in the plastic bag business in a sort of a bigger style and. Uh, we had our business on Irving Park Road at the time, and uh, I had just really got it in beautiful, beautiful shape. And the place burned down to the ground almost, and uh, <laughs> that was sort of a blow. 
Well, we decided we can't let that stop us. We went to the bank, and, you know, I'm surprised still. I don't think you could do that today. They gave us $250 on our signatures alone here. Our wives and both G.I. Uh, Star and I, we had to sign. And we went out and bought a, uh, a big place, uh, 60,000 square feet, and uh, tried to get some of the old equipment going and bought new equipment and bowed and steeled and uh, was starting to go great again. And then it was interesting, right next to our, our place out in display in Illinois, the, the state, I believe, either the city or the state, had built this huge, I don't know what it was, 60,000, 70,000 square feet building for for equipment and stuff. I came home one night. We had been out. I get a telephone call from my partner. He says, Paul, he says, please come down to the factory. Well, I said, well, is there anything the matter? Well, he says, just come on down. It had been a night with a lot of rain and thunder. Well, I get down there, and electricity is gone. And I wonder, where's the building that used to be next to us? I meet him, and uh, with flashlights, he went into to our factory, which was a, a huge building with a flat roof. Well, there was all kinds of beams sticking through the roof from outside, and water was just pouring in. There was about three feet of water in this plant of ours. The building next door had just, a tornado had just come in and uh, just demolished it completely, and uh, whatever was there just sort of did a lot of damage to our factory. So we started all over again. Plastic bag machines had a lot of electronic and electric stuff in them. Of course, that was all underwater. I had just stocked up on cardboard boxes and stuff, and that was floating around. And Jerry looked at me, and he says, Paul, he says, has it occurred to you that maybe we shouldn't be in business? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I said, it has. But we got over that also and uh, went on. Business was going good. We landed a big government contract, and then the oil problems. See, that was in the 70s, wasn't that, when we had this oil problems, uh, shortage of oil. And, of course, that affected uh, the polyethylene industry very much. Uh, we could not get resin to produce. But we had heard a lot about polyethylene laying around that could actually be, uh, be reused, you know, but we did not really have any equipment that could do that sort of stuff. We heard that in Italy, that somebody was building a machine over there that would take polyethylene uh, bags and stuff that had been used and reprocess it so it could again be used. I remember, I remember sitting down calling Rome. Do you have such a machine? Yes. Do you have one available? Yes. How much is it? $60,000. Okay, we'll send you a, a, a bank letter you know, of credit or whatever. We called up, I think it was uh, TWA, what does it cost to get a machine flown from Rome to uh, O'Hare? We got that arranged, and uh, two or three days later, the machine landed in or the machine landed O'Hare and arrived at our factory. We set it up. It came 5 o'clock in the afternoon. The next morning at 5 o'clock, we started. And from then on, it was just smooth sailing. Our business grew and grew and grew and grew. We had a lot of workers. We worked three shifts a day, uh, uh, you know, seven days a week, and uh, were very, very successful in business. But then uh, I became a Baha'i, I think. You know, and things sort of changed from then on. 
So how did that happen, Paul? Well, my sister-in-law became a Baha'i in the 60s, and she tried for 11 years to tell us about the Baha'i faith, and we didn't really pay much attention to her. Just sort of thought she, she had gone off her rockers, you know. <laughs> then she married a Baha'i, who we met, and we had several discussions, and uh, he, uh, I think, gave Jane a book, the, uh, the Thief in the Night, which she read, and she said, Paul, she says, uh, I think it's the truth. I said, don't bother me with that stuff. <laughs> well, at any rate, we drove down to visit her parents, or her mother at that time. We had two kids by that time. She decided to stay down there. I had to get back to work, so she drove me over to Springfield Airport, and uh, I was going to fly back. So when we were at the airport, she hands me thief in the night again, and uh, rather than argue with her, I said, okay, I took the book, and I thought I could always get rid of it. <laughs> well, I sat in the airport down in Springfield, and the plane was late for two hours, so I got bored, and I started to, I opened up the book. And that got my attention right away. I read in the airport, I read in the plane, I read in the taxi, I came to my home out in Northbrook, Illinois, I threw my bags on the floor and sat down and continued to read till 4 o'clock in the morning. I'd finished the book. And I was thoroughly interested in what I had read, so we were 20 minutes from the house of worship in Wilmet. So I drove over to the house of worship in Wilmet the next day and got three stacks of books. And for the next month, nobody saw me. When I wasn't working, I was sitting down in my room in the basement reading my books. And after three months, uh, my wife and I were going to a fireside one night. I told her, I don't know about you, but I'm declaring my fate in Baha'u'llah tonight. We did it both at the same time. So that, was, of course, was, uh, was quite a change in our life. Living up close to the Baha'i House of Worship in Normet was a tremendous bounty in those days because we got to meet so many of the beautiful people in the Baha'i faith. Paul, let me ask you a couple of questions here. Uh, the first one is, you mentioned the book Thief in the Night. What was it about that book that just got your attention? Well, you know, this, this is so interesting because uh, when I was six, year, six years old, I remember one day, why I remember just like it was yesterday, I don't know, but I was standing outside our little farm and looking up at the clouds. The only reason that I was thinking this way, I believe, is that maybe the night before, uh, my parents must have had some sort of meeting talking about uh, uh, Jesus and uh, the Bible. Because I was standing there looking up at the clouds, wondering if I would be here on earth when Jesus came back, you know, sitting on a cloud for everybody to see. Now, I start to read Thief in the Night, and William says, of course, going into to the details, you know, of the prophecies and the Bible and so forth. It just, it just, uh, it just grabbed my attention. So much coming from uh, a family, you know, who, that was very fundamental in their Christian beliefs, to the extent that my best friend, when I was a child, he was a Seventh-day Adventist, and my dad, God bless his soul, said, Paul, he says, you know, Kai, he, he can't make it to heaven because he's a Seventh-day Adventist, you know. And I said, Dad, I said, this can't be so. I said, you know, God loves everybody. <laughs> so uh, 
I, I think just just the fact that they dealt with the prophecies in the Bible and so forth is what grabbed my attention. And you mentioned Wilmette, Illinois, and the Baha'i House of Worship. Can you explain what that is? Well, of course, uh, in the Baha'i faith, there is there is seven Baha'i House of Worships uh, today. They are all beautiful, beautiful buildings that are erected by the Baha'is. They are all similar in design, so far as it has a, 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 a dome and nine entrances, and everybody welcome to visit these places. It is a place where one can go and pray and meditate. And the Baha'i House uh, Worship in Wilmette has a, uh, a beautiful bookstore down on, in the basement where one can go and get literature and find out about the Baha'i faith. And the Baha'i Temple in, in Chicago, I believe, is, is a landmark today in the United States. It is a beautiful, beautiful building. The architecture is, is very, very special. Thousands and thousands of visitors come to it every day to observe the beauty and uh, marvel at, at the intricacies of the science, but also, I believe, to, to learn what is the Baha'i faith. You mentioned you went to firesides. What do you mean by that? When I had been reading these books, I think she must, uh, my wife must have gotten that from her, her sister, you know, the word fireside. So we found out that in town there was, there was a lady who uh, every Tuesday night opened up her home and invited uh, those who were interested in hearing about this new religion to come, her home, to, to, come to her home and hear about the teachings of the Baha'i faith. Different speakers would come. Uh, we would go to those firesides, and uh, we enjoyed very much the discussions that went on and uh, just the atmosphere of love and uh, openness. And you mentioned that the Baha'i faith changed your life. How did it change your life? Well, you know, coming from a, a Christian background, although for uh, since I was 15 to, uh, and I was 40 when I became a Baha'i, I had really not practiced any religion, but I knew in my heart, though, that there was a God, and of course that Jesus was the only one. He was the Son of God, and he was the only one. But reading Thief in the Night, pointing out all the prophecies in the Bible, pointing to the coming of the return of Christ, that, that of course, you know, was what grabbed me in the first place. And then when I learned that Baha'u'llah, which means the glory of God, by the way, was the return of Christ. That, that really grabbed my attention, so I had to find out, you know, what, what it was that William Sears was talking about. So I went and got all these books. Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, he authored more than 100 books and tablets. And I, I dare say that he has answered just about any question that has confounded us for centuries who we are and why we're here and where we're going. And I was just devouring the word literally. I, it was so exciting for me. Being an avid reader to begin with, I, I enjoyed it. And uh, I, I got to see that, well, there is really only one God and that all religions are one. It just made so much sense to me. So you said you were no longer interested in business after you became a Baha'i? Is that what you said? Yeah, well, I was still in business for a few years, you know, and uh, it, it, something interesting happened. 
being part owner of the business, of course, I was the boss, you know. Uh, my my partner, he took care of the office part, and I took care of the factory part. And so we had a lot of Latinos working for us. I had talked to a lot of them uh, who spoke a little bit of English. So I thought, well, I'm going to invite them and see what happens. So I told a lot of the people that worked for me, on Sunday afternoon, if you want to come out to my house, I gave them the address, come on. I really didn't expect any, but lo and behold, one Sunday afternoon, three o'clock, about twenty people arrived. Oh my God! All speaking Spanish, very little English. So, <laughs> what to do? I called up my friend Ernie Lopez. He was uh, a gardener at the House of Worship. He spoke fluent Spanish, so he came over, and something wonderful happened. Every three weeks. We would have these, we called them bilingual firesides. We had a huge house at that time. Uh, we had 90, 100 people come uh, to hear about the, the Baha'i faith. We would start in the middle of the afternoon. We would have a band going, playing for them. And then we would have a potluck. And then we would split up. We would have an English section and a Spanish section. And in the basement, we would have a young uh, children section. We had the most wonderful firesides out there, so it, it was just it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful experience, you know. No, in '75, when they had an international conference down in uh, in, in uh, Mexico, in on the Yucatan Peninsula, in Merida, on the Yucatan Peninsula, they had a uh, Baha'i conference down there. Ernie Lopez and myself decided to drive down there, so we drove from. Chicago down to uh, to Mexico. That in itself was an incredible trip. I think it was eleven thousand miles round trip. I had never really been very much interested in uh, in Latin America, but I just fell in love with Mexico. Leaving, we went down and visited the Mayan Indians. I was just thoroughly impressed with everything that I saw. Driving back, I got to thinking, you know, I don't really like to make plastic bags anymore. Why don't we just sell everything and go pioneering? Well, I got home and I got my kids and my wife together and I said, what do you think if we just uh, sell everything and go pioneering? And my girl said, if we take Sherlock, that was our dog, with us, we can go anywhere. And my wife, she said, okay. I sold my part in the business, and uh, we put our house up for sale. And so we went to the Bahamas and flew down to uh, the Turks and Caicos Islands and investigated. So we went home and we sold everything and uh, loaded up a. Uh, we bought a jeep, loaded it up with our personal belongings, and drove off to the Bahamas. And we pioneered there for three and a half years. So, Paul, I have a question for you. You keep yeah. you keep using this term pioneering. Can you explain what that is, please? I don't know, Lindens. I guess you're called a missionary, really. Pioneers for the Baha'i faith are people who, uh, on their own accord, decide to go to some place in the world to settle down and live amongst the people and share the teachings of the Baha'i faith. In, in just about all cases, it is done at the uh, the people that are pioneering pay their own expenses. In many cases, of course, they have to uh, to work in order to sustain themselves. We were blessed 
with the fact that we'd had a very, very good business that brought in a good sum of money. So we were financially independent for the time we spent pioneering. But it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. We landed on the island of Andros, uh, which was it is the biggest island in the Bahamas. And it was so interesting. I remember we wanted to have a public meeting in this town, Nicholstown, on the northern part of Andros. They had this small wooden church painted white. <laughs> on the front door, there was the sign that says, dedicated to the glory of God. Of course, that grabbed my attention, you know, Baha'u'llah meaning the glory of God. And I went and contacted the minister and told him view Baha'is and uh, we would like very much to tell the people about the Baha'i faith. Well, on the small island or like Andros, there was not many exciting things happened, so they welcomed us with open arms. And uh, That night, that little church was filled to capacity. People were standing outside in big circles around the church. We were showing a slideshow also. Anybody, there was somebody on Andros where that church that night. The police chief, the mayor, the representative. <laughs> we just had a marvelous time. And I stood there and I told them about the Baha'i faith and told them that Baha'u'llah came, come, you know, and everybody was saying, tell it like it is, brother, you know. <laughs> it, it was a fantastic evening. And we were... We, got to become very good friends with the minister. Of course, once he really found out what the Baha'i message was, uh, he would have no part of it, but we were okay. And my wife and I, we have been in our Jeep and uh, drove around and met all the preachers on the island, told them who we were, and some were not so friendly and others were friendly. So, so we had a we had a marvelous time sharing, sharing the Baha'i faith with with uh, the people. We were in Andros for what about a year and a half, I think. Our children were going to school there, and uh, the education on this island were not the best. So we decided to move over to the island of uh, Nassau, New Providence, actually. That's where the capital of Nassau is located, because uh, we could send them to a private school there, and we lived there for another year. One day, I discovered that our visa had expired, so we went down to the immigration and told them, uh, asked them for another extension, and they said, no, you've been here long enough now, you have to leave. So it looked like uh, our stay in uh, the Bahamas was over. There was no way we tried every which way to talk them into giving us an extension. They wouldn't. But it was so interesting that the day that the immigration turned us down, we came home, and in our home was a girl, or woman rather, Rosemary Bailey, who had lived in the Bahamas but had moved to Panama. And we told her our story, and she said, wonderful, she says, I know exactly why you were denied extension on your visa. We need somebody to come down and take care of the Baha'i Temple in Panama. So this is another house of worship like the one in Wilmette, Illinois? Yes, it is, yeah. And after Panama, we went. And you were caretakers of the the house of worship during that time? Yeah, for 15 years, we took care of the Baha'i house of worship. You know, <laughs> that was 
probably the 15 best years of our life, I think. El Padre, that's what they called me, you know, the father. Went up into the mountains to visit the Indians, the Guaymi Indians, that I became very attached to and spent a lot of time there. So we had a wonderful, wonderful 15 years down in, in Panama. Now, Paul, you said that the workers there at the House of Worship in Panama would call you El Padre. Is there clergy in the Baha'i faith? In the Baha'i faith, there is no clergy. Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, said that mankind is attaining unto maturity, and today we have the capacity to investigate the truth for ourselves. And Baha'u'llah went on to say that God in this day has given every sincere soul the capacity to know the truth for himself. Well, Paul, thank you so much for sharing your story. It was so interesting. (laughs) Okay. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Paul Jensen, a Dane who had an irrepressible spirit for adventure that he was able to fully express once he became a Baha'i. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.